Greetings. Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues impacting and involved with the business of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. It's the Business of Agriculture. Got an awesome show for you today because I have an awesome guest. This guy came on my radar a month or so ago. His name is Chris Middlestat. He's a California businessman that 20, almost 22 years ago, was delivering faxes in a Fairmont hotel. Uh, underemployed, you might say, well-educated guy from the East Coast, and he starts this business called Fruit Guys. Fruit Guys LLC now delivers fruit to offices. So like all those people that are working in corporate offices, they're eating sweets and donuts in the break room, he gives them an alternative, fruits and vegetables. Neat idea. Started basically out of the back of his car. Absolute entrepreneur, great story to tell. And since it involves food and agriculture, I knew that you would love it. Chris Middlestat, welcome to the Business of Agriculture. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So I gave you the background here. You're a kid from Philadelphia. You always had a bit of an entrepreneurial flair because you were dragging around your little red wagon when you were a little boy selling <laughs> produce or fruits or vegetables or something out of the back of the wagon. And then you decided to do it full time in 1998. Take me from the red wagon to 1998. Yeah, well, it wasn't exactly a straight line. I mean, that was that was one of my first things that I did when I was when I was a little kid. Was uh, we had a, a sort of a loop around our block, and my mom ha always had a great vegetable garden, and, and I would uh, sell out of the little radio flyer uh, wagon. But it was um, my I sort of cut my entrepreneurial teeth when I was in college, and I I got a franchise of a group called College Pro Painters, which was a local painting outfit, and I was trained on how to paint houses, sell jobs, manage uh, employees, and manage sort of painting projects. And I did that for about three years and really learned about running a business in a technical way, sort of the nuts and bolts, the ins and outs of, you know, how to sell a job, how to keep your promises, how to make sure that you can uh, produce what you say you're going to produce. And um, that was really where I sort of, I, I got interested in being in business uh, in, in a true way and really started to understand what being in a business involved. And it was much more than what I was learning in college at the time. That was sort of the textbook learning around, you know, uh, profit and loss statements or balance sheets or any of the accounting stuff. It was really around the people management, how to, how to deal with difficulty, um, you know, sort of thinking about how you're going to constantly be evolving or adapting the business as well too, listening to your customers, all those kinds of things that were really important formative lessons for me as I later moved forward. And then, I got out of college. I'd made some money. I, I traveled around the world. I um, landed back in San Francisco after being out and about for a year. And, um, you know, I really fell in love with the Bay Area. I just, I loved, after seeing all these places in the world, I loved the mix of sort of the way the city blended with the natural environment out there. I really liked the water and, um, you know, like being, you know, just in such a, a beautiful area. So I decided to sit down there, settle down there. I, I really thought I was going to be a writer and wanted to pursue writing, fiction writing. Um, I got involved in selling advertising in newspapers, met my wife, got married. Um, we had a great first year married together. And then I was in between jobs, as you mentioned, working at the Fairmont Hotel as a fax boy. And I, uh, you know, my wife and I found ourselves a little unexpectedly a little unexpectedly pregnant before we, we thought we would be starting a family. And um, the clock started ticking for me around the idea of starting a business or getting my life together. And that's when I came up with the idea of the fruit guys. 
Okay, so the, the average person, you know, I've got all sorts of different people on this podcast from cranberries to cattle to, you know, whatever. Uh, few of them set out to become writers of fiction and then ended up being in the business of fruit delivery. So it's a cool story. Um, you know, we got people all across the spectrum that listen to the business of agriculture, equipment dealers, seed salespeople, farmers. Your thing is kind of unique. You're not from an agricultural background, but yeah, your mom had a garden. You sold vegetables as a kid. There you are now, you're in your 20s, and you're, you know, you're saying, I got to start something. How did it hit you that you just thought, fruit? Why fruit? So uh, we had a friend at the time that was pushing a coffee cart at Montgomery Securities downtown in, in uh, San Francisco. And he was, it was in the early days of the dot-com start. This was 97. And um, when I was in between jobs in this sort of what felt like a very desperate place at the time, I called him up and said, you know, I, I need to start a business. I need to do something. Is there, is there anything you can imagine that we could bring to an office? And he said, well, you know, I'm pushing this cart around, selling donuts and coffee all day. If you could bring something healthy, I think people would really appreciate it. So we had this idea of bringing fresh fruit to offices as a way to bring something natural and healthy. And it was, it was funny. It wasn't even something that I thought that hard about. It just made a lot of sense. I was like, you know, what, what's the freshest thing we could bring? What's a real natural thing? It's not packaged. It's unique. It's kind of hard to do. So a lot of people aren't doing it right now. And uh, let's see if we can can start with fruit. And I went downtown to, uh, in San Francisco, there's a row of four buildings called the Embarcadero Center. And I was, the security guard there was kind enough to let me stand in front of this little scroll of all of the um, names of the offices that were in the building at the time. And so we copied them down by hand, copied about 500 names down, went back to my little apartment in North Beach and pulled out the, the white pages and we, over the course of the week, almost called all of those companies and we were able to get about five accounts just without even having a product yet, just convincing them that the idea was a good idea and we gave them a little starter discount and to see if they would, uh, uh, would be our first customers. And we have, I think, three out of those five accounts we still have to this day. That's one years later. 22 years later, you still got those accounts. So basically, you said, I'm going to take fruit to these people because folks in these little office, you know, in these offices need, need something and fruit comes to mind. And then, and then you get your accounts. Tell me about the product because the people who listen to this podcast are all about farm and agriculture. They're saying, okay, where's this stuff come from? Where'd you, where'd you get your products? You didn't grow it. You weren't, the, you weren't growing it yourself. So you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go just grab it at the market. And then eventually you probably got to where you're working with farmers. Yeah, we were, we were lucky to be really close to a uh, farmer's market in San Francisco at the time I started the business. So I would actually go down to, there, there were two places I was buying from. I was buying from the wholesale market uh, at the time to fill out things that I, I couldn't get through farmers like bananas and things like that and, and other products. But we also made some contacts with some farmers early on through a local farmer's market and they would bring things on a Saturday um, uh, and I would pick them up at the farmer's market from the farm and then we'd be able to deliver them on a, on a Monday. So that was, it was a good way to kind of start the business and also start to talk to farmers and understand a little bit more about their experience and, you know, their perspective on the world. Um, as we grew the business and we could basically hire people and kind of create the infrastructure to allow us to really create a buying and receiving department within the business, then we were able to buy much more effectively direct from farms. And now sort of 21 years later, we're working with a couple hundred farms consistently across the United States out of our 15 different locations. And a lot of our goal is to really try to work with as much local ag in the regions where we're um, bundling up our product into these mixes and then delivering them to offices in that region. 
Yeah, so that's the neat thing. Okay, we all know there's no bananas grown in North America, so you've got to bring those in, but certainly the apples and the grapes and all these kinds of things that you can source. And then you, you know, you've gotten to where now you're a supply chain and you're saying, all right, I want to work with these producers of this product. And, and, um, did, did they get to where they're like, Hey, there's this guy over here with fruit guys. I'd like to, did they seek you out at some point? Because now they've heard from their buddy or they heard, you know, one guy grows grapes and then and his friend is an apple producer and says, we all start, you know, selling to him. How'd it go? Yeah, no, the community effect is really cool. Right. I mean, that's actually really neat is, and, and you don't realize how, um, how small the world is until you kind of get into farming or in ag a little bit. And you realize that a lot of people know each other and there's a lot of discussion. Um, one of the things I like about the industry is that it's still a lot of it's relationship driven in terms of, you know, knowing the people that you're working with and the buyers that we have in the different regions today, they're really out there working with the farmers and understanding their business and talking to them and really trying to get to know them. And it does lead to that community effect, which is, Hey, you should call these guys. They're looking for this. And, and we get a lot of referrals that way. Um, and we love to go out and our buyers are great about going out and visiting the farms and understanding kind of, what the growing practices are, what they are growing, uh, how their season's looking. Um, you're really learning about the different, uh, the different ways, weather or, you know, the way the crops coming in that particular year is affecting them. Okay. So uh, let's say a bunch of your businesses are in your, your accounts are, uh, the people you sell to your customers yes. are in say California. Let's say I'm a, I'm a California peach grower, whatever. Um, and I say, man, I've got these peaches. Uh, do I sign a contract with you and you decide you're going to take, half of all the peaches I produce this particular year. Uh, how does it work? You know, to be honest, we, we are very, we're very relationship driven. So in our business, we actually, we actually uh, are deferring to some degree to the farmer and the way they want to run their business. We have not traditionally done contracts in that way, um, mainly because we want to give the farmer the flexibility to be able to do what they need to do. We do have farms that grow specific commodities for us to a very specific um, goal. And we do contract with those farms when they're, they're breaking out something and saying, Hey, if we want to grow a peach with a particular type of blush on it, or, you know, we're particularly carving out, um, a very specific grape that we're going to buy in volume, then we'll do something along those lines. But, um, you know, I've been surprised at how, how uh, again, relationship-driven it is. Uh, there are other pieces of the business that are much more formal than the on the contract side than on the farming side. But we, again, part of this is 21 years of, of having these relationships and honoring our word, and that does actually carry forward a tremendous uh, length of time, both with the farmers we work with and with other farmers they then hear from. So our reputation really is the thing that, that drives, I think, our ability to continue to, to build those kind of relationships. One thing that I observe, obviously, been around farm people. I've been around ag people my whole life. I am a farm person. I've got, you know, I, I always point out that generally we think like producers. We, we just tend to just think about production. You know, we're the factory. Produce, 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 produce. Um, not always thinking about, and when we say marketing, like when I say marketing to my farmer friends in Indiana, they mean, do did I sell, uh, you know, 40 semi loads of corn right. on the you know, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, right. not marketing like I'm going to promote De La Rosa Farms as this place for your best peaches on the West Coast or whatever. So you've brought a little bit of that to these folks because they they um, they get their they get their benefit of selling it to you. You add the value. Any of these people doing their own thing? Are they selling their own stuff? Are they go to farmers markets. Are they doing? Do you see any of your farms that are saying, "I'm creating this brand of, you know, De La Rosa peaches"? 
Yeah, and then that's the thing I was going to say is the difference between marketing and branding is that's a wide gap, right? And really the part of it is on the branding side, both um, being able to tell the story about why your product is valuable against other products, but also at the same time, understanding then the market you're actually selling to and how those two things converge and work really well together. So it's like the idea of that the, the story matches actually then the customer need and that those things are satisfied together. And the, I think there are farmers we work with that are, especially the smaller farmers that are, are put in a position where if you're, if you're running 30 acres or something, or even some farms that are smaller than that, you know, 20 acres, 15 acres, it might grow a very specific specialty crop. They're going to have to find specialty markets for those where they can command premium prices in order to make the payback from a business standpoint for the amount of land they're farming actually work out, the economics to work out. So we do find that there are farmers out there that are doing that kind of thinking. Um, and they're, and we like to work with those folks because we find that they take their product, they steward their product really, really well. And, and we think they do a great job. We also have farmers that I would consider sort of um, small to medium size, sort of in the couple hundred acres that are also doing a spectacular job, but their branding may be a little bit different where they might not be going direct to consumer like the really small guys are, but they might be going direct to some channel in the market, whether it's grocery or whether it's wholesale or whether it's food service. And they are branding their product, but uh, because their volumes are a little bit larger, they tend to need have a higher volume need and they just need to brand it and think about what their story is uh, as it matches up with their market a little differently than the real small guy. Talk about the product mix. Um, if I'm a customer and I want to be a customer of Fruit Guys, um, what can I get? What can I brought, have brought to my office every, how often? Every couple of days? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, uh, it can be on whatever schedule the customer really wants, to be honest. I mean, it's really up to them, and that's kind of the way that we, we work with those customers. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a mix. We have a, a number of different mixes, but it's, we're really trying to be seasonal. One of our missions is to really support a domestic small farm agriculture in the United States. And so uh, for us, we want to buy from as much local farms as we can. So we are very interested in seasonality. Um, you are going to see different mixes by region. So our Chicago facility, for example, is going to have a completely different mix because the when stuff is coming off trees is really different than, say, California will be. And Southern California is different than Northern California is different than Seattle, you know, and we're going to cite, are we going to cycle through roughly the same commodities? We will. Will we find that there may be some commodities that have higher volumes or have more local flair uh, in different, different regions like, you know, um, blueberries in New Jersey or, or things that are coming off in a certain region? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and they have, they have different seasons, but we're going to cycle through the season. So you're going to see citrus in the winter. Um, you're going to see, you know, springtime is, is, you know, dead as everybody knows in the fruit world, except for basically strawberries. You're going to see um, uh, you're going to see then stone fruit and all the summer fruits all the way through, and then you're going to see the fall. You know, apples, pears, persimmons, all sort of the specialty crops as well in the fall. Chris, how much of your stuff? Uh, certainly, you know, we still have the limitation that you know you're in Cleveland, and you, you know, they ain't no bananas in Cleveland, and right. in February there's nothing. Uh, during that time of the year, you're not able to to do much with your local people. Does anything come out of greenhouses, or what am I what am I getting then? Uh, on the fruit side, not as much. It's really what we're doing is we've gotten to the point now where, again, we can then use the farmers that are still in season in the regions where we are. So Southern California or Texas or Florida, and we can pull from those regions and, and bring product into markets basically when those areas are basically out of season. Mm -hmm. um, we do try to use like uh, we did a great deal with a very uh, a local apple grower in, in central Pennsylvania 
um, where we're, you know, not just buying the apples, but we're also, because we want to commit to him, um, you know, as much of the volume as we can, we actually work with him on storage so that we can use a domestic crop even as you go into the winter then. And, and we actually plan for that and we sort of, you know, figure that out with him. And that's, that's something, again, we really want to be thoughtful about how we're helping to support the farmers to meet their goals and also to bring as much of the domestic crop as we can to folks. Yeah, one of your visions is to help out this the small independent, and, and of course, that's that's. I don't know a lot about production of fruits and vegetables because that's just a little bit different, not on my wheelhouse. Um, do do you buy from anybody that also then sells to Del Monte or that also sells to the you know Green Giant? I, I don't know. Not that I know of, to be honest. I mean, I I um, I mean, I have to go talk to our buyers, but that doesn't sort of. Not off the top of my head, to be honest. I mean, I would I would classify the majority of the folks we work with are going to be sort of on that family kind of farm. Okay, so uh, other than the big commodities, like obviously bananas. Uh, when we buy bananas, they're coming from, you know, one of the big sort of, you know, four bananas. Yeah, Dole or whoever that's the big yeah. Chiquita, whatever. So you said you like the relationship aspect of agriculture. You're from a suburban background, and uh, now you're you're knee deep in the business. On the one side, you're dealing with people in big skyscrapers and offices. On the other side, you're grabbing product from uh, farms. What have you learned? What have you learned about this business, about food production? What's 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 it taught you in 22 years? Um, I am. One of the things I love on the farm side is just how how um, we have found some amazing relationships that are very long term that are just lovely people. I mean, just like people, regardless around where they're from in the United States and sort of what they're growing, helpful, thoughtful, interested and interesting people that are committed to the crops that they're growing and the sort of the, the stewardship of what they're doing. And that to me is always motivating. I find that really just um, exciting to be around because it's it's people that are really invested in what they're doing. And um, so on the farm side, I think that's that's wonderful. On the on the consumer side, um, a lot of education. Um, you know, uh, one of the ch- biggest challenges we have, believe it or not, is Every year when we put satsumas, which are, you know, Mandarin in, in the box, it's a, a special I, I don't know what these are. I, I don't know what these are. So satsumas are these, these mandarins that basically have a sort of a pithy soft skin. We call it like the Sharpay of fruit. It's almost like it's a soft skin where you can pop your finger through the bottom of the skin. It's got air between the, the skin and the fruit. It's, it's zipper skin peel. You can easily peel them, but they're the sweetest, most wonderful mandarins that you can find. And they're grown in, in, as a specialty crop in different places. Um, and in the, in the U.S. and we uh, we distribute these to customers, and we will always get questions where customers will call up and say, "You gave me a a wrinkled and a uh, a rotten orange," and we're like, "No, that's actually the zipper skin on the Satsuma Mandarin." Just take one moment, flip it upside down, put your thumb through the little divot in the bottom; it'll pop. It has this wonderful smell to it. You peel it back, and it's got this beautiful, soft, seedless, uh, wonderful, um, you know, mandarin fruit inside. And uh, we spend so much time every year for the last 20 years educating people about that particular type of fruit. And what, what's interesting is that the what I've, I think what I've learned is that the consumer has an expectation, and where it comes from, I'm not exactly sure, but they have an expectation already in their mind of what a fruit should be. And so our ability to make sure we're not just telling the story of the farm, but actually how it's used, you know, when it's per- when it's ripe, 
you know, how it's going to be, how it's going to be experienced best is actually something that we really have to do all the time. And we can never assume that that goes away. That has to be constant. <clears throat> have you brand, have you thought about doing something beyond fruit? I mean, is like, what about meat? What about, uh, I, I'm, I'm just thinking here, you know, nuts. Hell, I don't know. Well, we do do, we do do some things in fruit guys, uh, packaging that are, um, we do work with some, some producers and we've done a fruit guys branded like uh, trail mix and almonds. And we've done some dried fruit and we experiment with those kinds of things as well as snacks in the office. And we, we do do those, some of those things now. So we're, but it's, but the other thing I realized too is, is packaged versus na versus fresh is really different even, even in the food space. And we're, um, I love out of hand fruit. I just think it's like such a, it's nature's gift to us all. And that like you literally pick up a piece of fruit and it's like the packaging is edible, right? It's like in most cases, like with an apple or a pear, and I love that about it. And it's, um, it's such, it's such a, a neat thing. I, I just want to continue to educate the world about sort of out of hand natural fruit. And I know that sounds narrow, but at the same time, it's sort of the uh, kind of the mission I think that we're on. Speaking of the mission you're on, okay, so I tell my agricultural people that there's more space, more room, more opportunity for non-commodity style production than there's ever been. You know, I, I point this out all the time, I make, I make the joke that now more than ever because of the foodie movement, 53% of Americans now consider themselves to be foodies. Foodie being defined as a person with intensely interested in their cuisine. Right. Okay. So with the foodie movement, the internet, and the fact that we are an affluent country, you know, we still have 25% of the global GDP right here with only 4.3% of the global population. We're wealthy, we're foodie, we're internet oriented. Packet, the, 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 the idea of story. I think that it's a better time right now for niche agriculture. I see it. And I know that I have my farm people like, yeah, but I'm set to grow corn and soybeans. You know, whatever. Like, yeah, I get it. But what if you could just do something on 20 of your acres, something that's more niche category? Where do you see opportunities for those of us that are in production agriculture? Well, you're also talking about diversification there too, rather than sort of monoculture or, or sort of like, even from a business standpoint, regardless of the ag, sort of like, um, you're talking about diversification. And I, I like that anyway. It's the portfolio effect of sort of thinking about how you're thinking about the opportunities and, and testing opportunities that are out there. Um, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for it. I think heirloom product is really something that we see a lot of and that we continue to, to support. And really, uh, we try to find as much heirloom product as we can for our product. So um, our Arkansas black apples, for example, which is like a, a variant of the wine sap, late 1800s kind of apple. One of my favorite apples, it's a dark purple skin. You bite it, it almost tastes like it's got cherry in the apple flavor. It's like such a wonderful piece of fruit. Those kinds of things are in, I think, in high demand when you go into certain markets. But the farmer then has to understand their market and understand like, when does a market become saturated? Uh, part of the value of keeping an heirloom is, is scarcity at some level too. So you also have to be conscious of, the, that's why I like the idea of the portfolio effect is if a farmer, for example, if you have an apple orchard and you're not just doing one particular crop, but you're doing a lot of different heirlooms, the ability for you both to time that out and also to kind of capture the interest of a market, I think is interesting. Yeah. So by the way, to, to our listeners, 
you know, in my book, Food Fear, and I do have to do a plug here, Chris, my new book, Food Fear, is available as an ebook, as an audiobook, and as a hardcover, Food Fear, How Fear is Ruining Your Dinner and Why You Should Celebrate Eating. I have a chapter in there called Adjectives That Sell. And because I see we've got the commodity production down, man, we've got food production. We've got it dialed in for the last 40, 50 years. We've certainly got it dialed in. That's why there's surpluses. That's why we, that's why we have a conservation reserve program to take acres out of production. Adjectives that sell is an opportunity for us. Now I know that the person that says, Hey, Damien, it's a neat idea, but you know what? I took out 20 acres of uh, red delicious uh, apple trees and put in these stupid ass heirlooms. And then that product never caught on. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, but we also have a lot of mark. Person listening to this, just to go rewind here, heirloom is an adjective that sells, just like heritage breed. Tell right. your list, tell our listeners what when you say heirloom, I'm thinking it's a, a variety of, of of any product that we can produce that really is not around much anymore, right? Yeah, I mean that's sort of my definition of it is something that that has history to it, so that there's history to the product itself, something that uh, you can you can tell the story of that history and that's something that is unique and, and also something that that's again, from my definition is not readily seen in the market as an experience. So um, we all, we also watch the, like the slow food movement, right? Like they have a whole Proceda project, which is this arc of taste thing where they basically say that these are particular types of commodities that should be conserved things that should be protected as you know, these heirloom kind of products. And in our region, in, nor in one of our regions in Northern California, there's the Gravenstein apple, for example, which is an apple that was a, um, an apple grown uh, a tremendous amount in Northern California. It was used for sauce uh, and other products during World War II, but then really fell out of favor because it's not a good shipping apple. It's got a short stem, falls off the tree a lot, and not a, a, lot, not a lot of the product as a percentage of the tree basically goes to market. Um, it doesn't have a long shelf life. But it's a wonderful tasting apple, but that taste is really like a two to four week time span. Uh -huh, yeah. so, so we buy a lot of it and we promote it a lot and we, we will uh, let people know even as gifts and as special experiences that they can experience this, but it does have a very short season. So the ability to then communicate that and also find a way to market that becomes important to the ability to actually then sort of think about how heirloom lives then for the consumer that you're selling it to. Yeah, one thing that I guess that you and I both are in agreement on, and, and again, it's not because we've done anything wrong in the business of agriculture. It's because we just got really darn good at making lots and lots of quantity of commodity items. Red Delicious, uh, you know, yellow number two corn. I mean, I can go on and on, but um, the consumer moving forward, and I'm telling you, the millennials, everybody griping about the millennials. I don't gripe about them as a generation, but I can tell you about them and the ones under them, the Gen Z or post-millennials as they're called, are going to be more food specific than any consumer has ever been on the face of the earth. They've been well-fed. They, they want their avocado toast, and they want it to be avocado toast with a story about where the avocado came from and all that. And the thing is, they can pay for it. I mean, that's, that's the issue. It seems to me that we're going to just continue to do more of this. So instead of just, I make as many red delicious apples as possible and throw them out there and say, here, eat these things. I think more and more it's going to be, yeah, for this four week window, it's going to be this heirloom variety of apple. And then on, uh, on uh, November 1st, it changes to this. I think we're going to get better at that. Do you? Yeah. I, well, what I, what I love about it is it's a way to actually celebrate the natural world and the seasons that really do happen to us. And it's, and I think there's a, 
there can be a disconnection in a lot of ways from the natural world because we've, we've come to think of it. We like take strawberries, for example, you don't understand unless you're really paying attention that strawberries now are a global supply chain, right? You would think that strawberries are grown year round in every region across, you know, all 12 months. And that's not the truth. So the ability to understand your own regional experience of geography and agriculture is a lot of it's tied to food. And I just find that interesting as an eater because it also allows you to kind of experience this idea of some peaks and, and what's in peak when and uh, sort of how the, you know, how the earth turns at some level. So not to be too crunchy about it, but it's, but it's, but that's always interesting to me because it's a way that I get to experience a, a given area a little bit too. So I, but I, I do like that about the, the, uh, the sort of the, the specific heirloom or the specialty or unique varietal movement that's out there now. You're from, oh, you're, you're not you're from, you live in California, which is right. the nation's number one agricultural state by revenue. And it's like 50% greater than number two, which is Iowa. There's a lot of my friends in Iowa that probably do not know that or even want to admit that, but California is a huge agricultural state. So you've learned a lot. You've seen stuff. You are around. You're a smart business guy. What are we doing wrong? What are we doing wrong in the business of agriculture? I know you don't know about corn like I do because I'm from Indiana, but what are we doing wrong just from a big picture? You see anything? Huh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I often feel not knowledgeable enough to solve that, to answer that question or solve it. I mean, I can tell you from yeah, my I mean, experience. You buy, you buy a lot of fruit, you distribute a hell of a lot of fruit, you market a lot of fruit, but yeah, you're, you probably don't, you don't think you're qualified because you don't produce the fruit, but you're around yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, the, st the stuff that I am aware of, so we have this, uh, we have this small nonprofit we spun out in 2012 called the Fruit Guys Community Fund. And one of the things that we do is we look at ways to support farmers with very small grants between $2,500 and $5,000 for sustainability projects that are um, things that will help their farm thrive. And, and we've kind of come up with these 10 points around this idea of like, what are the, the kinds of projects that we want to look at? So soil health, sort of like, you know, water preservation. Um, we look at sort of pollination, all of these things that, uh, you know, pest control. How, how are these things impacting the farm? And are there solutions that can be cre oftentimes creative, but simple solutions that can really help the farmer? So as an example, we had a, we had a farmer that grew these, grows these wonderful white peaches um, out sort of east here of here in the Bay Area towards the valley. And um, he was having a rodent problem with rodents in his field and eating roots and running around and just digging up holes. And so we bought with it, he bought with this money that we granted him uh, three owl boxes that we put up on his property. And he now has owls out there that are basically catching the rodents, which is a very natural way for pest control. So he doesn't have to put poison down. He, he had, you know, little kids when we did this project and he didn't want the little kids running around sort of in a field, you know, laden with, with, with rap, you know, kind of rodents. Yeah, so I put you on the spot by saying, what are we doing wrong? And I was glad you brought up, you told me before we started recording about this not profit where you're trying to do grants because you say, I want to give them something. Something, and something they probably wouldn't have spent money on. They were sitting well, there. Well, exactly. That's the thing. Is like It's really this kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back concept is like, hey, you're farming every day. How can we help you with a project that might move the needle for you in a creative way and be something that really can be impactful to you? And, and we've now done, um, we've now given away like over $250,000 since the program started. It's done 73 farms. If, if people want to look it up, it's um, fruitguyscommunityfund.org. And you can Fruit see- Fruitguyscommunityfund.org. Yeah, and, and we do take applications. We're, we're in an open application process right now for farmers that want to apply as well too. So 
I mean, we're, we're interested in, in all sorts of creative ways that farmers are thinking about being great stewards of the land. So again, without suggesting a specific solution and saying what we're doing wrong, I think I'd, I'd maybe reframe that and say, how do we support this idea of low impact stewardship and really thinking about the, the ability for you to have positive impact on, in the world in which you're, you're, you're farming every day. And that really, to me, is, is the way I think we want to approach it. You told me about something else that I want to make sure we cover here, because this is, after all, called the Business of Agriculture podcast. We don't talk about the weather. I don't do grain charts. Um, we talk about interesting aspects in the business. You said you're involved with an organization that helps help people on the business side. You know, like I said, we generally get production, man. We think it's all about production. Well, <laughs> being a great producer is very important. And, uh, you know, they always say growing up, like I was raised on a dairy farm. Most dairy people in the Midwest in the 1970s and 80s, like us, where you were crop farmers and dairy farmers, like usually you're good at one or the other. <laughs> yeah. You're a cow guy or you're a crop guy. You're usually not both. Well, a lot of people are just really darn good at producing and they struggle sometimes on the business side. It doesn't mean they're dumb. It doesn't mean that they don't understand how to balance a checkbook. It's just that they don't look at their business like a business. You told me a story about that. You're involved with helping yeah. farmers do well, better. So I'm, I'm on the board of a group called California Farm Link, which is um, sort of like a, a community bank in a way. It's a nonprofit that basically helps farmers really stay on land in California because land has gotten so expensive and it's challenging. And, and so we think about how we can support them technically uh, with technical assistance, but also, and also as well with, with loans, uh, whether they're things for, uh, you know, relative to their crop or whether they're things relative to the land itself. Um, through that relationship, there's another group that um, I'm uh, a guy who was on my board for the Fruit Guys Community Fund. Um, he has a, a nonprofit called Kitchen Table Advisors. And this is an amazing concept because Kitchen Table Advisors, what they've decided to do is they've said, look, we want to support farmers, but we're not farmers. But what we're going to do is we're going to bring farmers in and really teach and really teach to them sort of the business side of farming. And it's not just like a profit and loss sort of expense control and management side, but it's really almost like market assessment and saying like, hey, look at your region and understand what's going on in farmers markets around you, what's going on in grocery stores around you, what are, you, what are the markets you have available to you, are they direct to consumer, are they through some channel, and then really thinking about like what you're growing and what you're producing to really th think about how you maximize the value that you're putting out of your farm into the marketplace that's in that particular region. So they do a great job putting consultants then in the field that are business consultants that really are going to the farms and working with them around the kitchen. It's like the kitchen table advisors concept. And they're sitting there talking to them about how to help them be a successful and thriving farm. So I love Anthony and his program and what he's doing out there and his team. And I think they've just got such a great idea and, are, and, and have really helped a tremendous number of small farmers as they're trying to think about how they make sure the business side of their business stays stable and really grows. Yeah, and I mean, this is, again, the person that lives down the road from me that farms 4,000 acres of corn and soybeans probably is not going to be a client or even need the services of kitchen table advisors. But for the person that says, I want to create a value-added product, I, I've got this, you know, my, my spouse and I have this uh, this small operation, um, and it's, it's non-commodity stuff, I imagine, for the most part, right? Well, they do both commodity and I think some product stuff too. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're really looking at, at food as business and saying like, what is the thing that you should be growing? Are, are you turning that into a product? Are you just selling it as a commodity? I mean, all those questions would come up and also based on what the farmer's trying to do too, right? I mean, some farmers, even though the opportunity may be there to develop a product, might 
want to be commodity people too, right? Or, or vice versa. It really, I think it, it can depend as well on sort of what the desire of that, that business person is. 1998, you're working in the basement receiving faxes. The young listener right now doesn't even know that that means a piece of thermal paper that would come across a phone line and print off on a machine. And you were running it to guests in the Fairmont Hotel. You started Fruit Guys. Awesome. You've done very well. You're all over the country. You're taking fruits and, and fresh food to people and offices. So you've got a vision. You've got a, you've got a lot of smarts about this. I predict the future in my book, Food Fear, and I talk about there's going to be more feuds, there's going to be more food control, there's going to be continual politicization and weaponization of food by cause groups, activists, and uh, politicians. I also see a future of a lot of variety. I see a future where we can charge even more because food, we always thought we need to make it cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. No, the consumer wants a story and so they can pay more for it. Those are some of my predictions. I see really opportunity for small. I see opportunity. I see continued consolidation at the big size. These are my predictions. Give me a couple of your predictions. You're a visionary. My predictions in the food space. Um, I agree with you that that the millennial and Gen Z um, are interested in understanding what they're eating and interested in something that's unique and something that's interesting. I don't think that's going to change. I do think there's something different about Gen Z that's, and I don't know if it's, um, my kids are Gen Z and I, I see this sort of in, in just a, a different worldview. There's almost a depression era sort of approach that's coming. And I don't know if it's like 9-11 or I don't know if it's 2008, but there's a savviness on cost that's actually really interesting. That is something that, that I'm, that I'm also watching emerge too. They definitely, they talk about Gen Z wanting experience. I think that's absolutely true, but I think that experience is also laden with a question around value. And I don't think it's sort of necessarily at any, at any cost. So I do think that's something that's going to be an interesting thing to watch uh, emerge. How's that relate? How's that relate to food? You're saying like you think that the I always say that the consumer will willingly spend more money on on value added stuff. You think that the kids that are 20 right now, eight, eight, yeah, 18, 16, 17, 18 to 20. I think there's something around frugality that's interesting to watch happen, and I I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's also, and I think it may go again. This is just me sort of having no basis whatsoever to say this, but just kind of making a leap is I don't know if it's also sort of the, the, the current, the, the concern about sort of like, um, you know, the way the world is going on a climate basis or anything else, but the idea of preservation of resources of being smart about those resources, I think is going to be a trend that's going to be important. And so as I translate that into then agriculture, being able to make sure that you're understanding how you're talking about the things you're doing in that world too, I do think become important because that equation around the frugality of the use of resources, I do think becomes an important trend and theme to be aware of. I agree with you. In fact, I talk about environmental eating, which is a, a thing that I've been seeing now for the last several years. Um, I want, it's not about organic. It's not about vegan. It's the younger folks that I think want to believe that we have mutual funds that invest in 
uh, socially conscious companies, whatever. What's kind of happening now on food where it's like, I'm going to invest my food dollars in food that I believe makes a difference. That's yes, amazing. exactly. If we in agriculture can can sell that story on, you know, uh, we're not organic. We didn't, you know, let's not even get into that debate. We just know that we're doing what we can to make a smaller environmental impact. I think that that's probably going to affect the future of food more than we probably realize. I agree. And I, and I think the, the word you just called out, impact, is an important one for producers to be thinking about, right? It's sort of like, if you're conscious of impact, then you're conscious of where you can actually make change. And a lot of times we can make change in things that we don't realize are, are things that we can impact. And I think being conscious of that, understanding what your ability to control those things are, and then market those things actually becomes that, that definition of sort of uh, the story that you're telling. And I, um, but I, I do think that's a trend. And I think that's something that'll continue to, to grow in people's interest and um, their they're just interested in learning more about the companies they're buying from. So speaking of interest, uh, there's an intense interest in food. All these people say, I want to know where my food comes from. And then backyard chickens and, and herb gardens. Does this continue or does it, does it, does it go away? Is, it, is this, is this a fad or is this, is this here to stay? This intense interest in food and wanting to have backyard chickens and $9 a dozen uh, cage free eggs and all this kind of thing. I mean, what, what's not cage free, but pasture raised. <laughs> right, right. What's, what's the, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the, um, I think there will always be the interest. Like you said at the beginning of the, the conversation, like some I mean, there's a large percentage of people that call themselves foodies now. Right. And I think there's going to constant, there's going to continue to be a real interest in um, the experience of food and, and the food itself. Um, you know, when I was on a small farm um, uh, forum a couple of years ago out in the Hudson Valley, and I was talking about how the changes to the food safety laws are going to impact this, which I do worry on the small farm side can actually be um, a worry, right? Because uh, the ability to have small run like chickens or things like that, as those things become more regulated too, I think one of my open questions I have is, will that impact small producers' ability to actually be able to fulfill that need that consumers are looking for? Or does it, so, or does it become more difficult? And, and we've seen this in the, just in the small farm growing space where, where some of the regulations force small farmers kind of either to say, well, hey, I'm a farmer's market farmer and I'm really not allowed to sell to anybody above this, or I've got to qualify now. And it's not that they're doing anything differently a lot of times, it's just the paperwork to get it done that they end up having to, um, to satisfy in order to actually sell to a market. And again, I'm, it, it's a weird argument because I, it's not at all that I or any, I mean, we're super, like all of our facilities are Primus certified, like, you know, super food safe. It's like we, all of those things comply. It's just the complexity of helping a farmer that might be a small producer manage that I think is getting more complicated. And that's something that we've been really interested in trying to help our farmers with to make sure they can get over that hump. Well, that's, the tough, that's the tough part is that uh, there's people out here clamoring for more regulation and they're the same people that are clamoring for against factory farms, not realizing that regulation uh, costs the bejesus out of small operators on a percentage basis uh, and a margin basis a lot more, you know, the bigger you are, the more you can comply with regulation. I mean, it's the same thing for banks. My, you know, my community banker tells me the same story, him versus Wells Fargo. Who's going to get hurt more on a percentage basis by regulation? Same thing for food. All right. His name is Chris Middlestat. This podcast is called The Business of Agriculture. His company is called Fruit Guys. If you want to check out fruitguyscommunityfund.org and you have an idea for a project that your farm could be helped with, look it up. If you want to find him because you want to buy fruit, where do they find you, Chris? Uh, you could just... Uh 
contact us at uh, 877-FRUIT-ME or just uh, email us at info at fruitguys.com and just uh, reach out to us. We'd be happy to talk to you and help. And, uh, and they can just go to fruitguys.com. If they say, I want, exactly. I want to sell this guy, I want to sell this guy uh, potatoes. You're saying we don't really do potatoes. Okay, well, I want to sell, sell them, I want to sell them uh, kumquats. All right. right. And, yeah, uh, kumquats are good. We like kumquats. <laughs> All right. I appreciate you being here. Till next time. Thanks for being here. It's the business of it. By the way, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. All right. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture.